0: Things we just forget about until yeah, you should. (laughs) If you stay really still, people probably wouldn't notice. (laughs) Um, Okay. Ah, yes. You're the man. Thanks, Peter. All right, all is well in the universe. It's good. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, Good to see you all. Welcome to Hiawatha. If you're visiting today, especially welcome to you. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we are going to dive right into our series in the book of Matthew. So if you're new, uh, the book of Matthew is uh, maybe new to the Bible as well, but especially just new to church here. Uh, we're going to preach through the whole book of Matthew when all is said and done. We started back in December in a connection with Advent and Christmas time. Uh, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament and starts with the theological history of Jesus' birth and the significance that that had of God becoming man and so forth. And so we talked about that for a few weeks and then just kept going. And so we're in Matthew 9 now, 9.35, 10.15 is uh, today's passage. We're basically in the middle of the book, and so we're subtitling this mini-series. It's kind of mini-series prize is the best word because it's taking up the big, biggest chunk of Matthew that we're going to have mini-series-wise. Um, it, I think it began back in chapter 7, or 8, I mean, and it's going to take us all the way through chapter 26. Uh, but it is still a sub-series. It's looking at this middle portion of Matthew where Jesus is declaring and demonstrating the gospel of the kingdom. So if that phrase is new to you, gospel of the kingdom, uh, the book of Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven. Basically it means the kingdom of God. And so what Jesus is doing, he's doing many things in his ministry, but the biggest piece to this, and he talks this way a lot, is he is ushering in God's kingdom and his rule on earth through his ministry. And especially what he's going to do on the cross when he goes to the cross to die for our sins and the empty tomb is a big piece of that as well, defeating death. We just sang about that a few minutes ago. That's where God's kingdom is and the order he brings into the world is fully ushered into, into history. It's where enemies are defeated. It's where order and peace come into our souls. It's where all the things that you think about when you think of kingdoms and what that means on earth, but just looking biblically too in the Old Testament, what that meant, Jesus is doing that spiritually now. He's slaying our enemies, sin and death. He's providing food for us in the land of blessing like Israel experienced physically and spiritually, but especially physically in the Old Testament, Jesus is saying, I'm bringing that into, not just for Israel, but for the world. All who believe in me, I'm bringing peace and provision and protection and rest and order, and I'm going to set myself up as king over you. And the way that that happens is the cross. And we're still before the cross here in this portion. That's where Jesus is headed. It's the climax of all the biblical narrative, not just in Matthew and the other three gospel accounts in the New Testament, but everything in the Bible is about that but especially here in Matthew. So before that, we're looking at different ways in which Jesus is declaring, anticipating with his words what's going to happen on the cross and how the kingdom of God is in in its fullest sense is going to come into the world through that event. But he's also demonstrating that through healings and through teaching in parables and through exorcisms and all kinds of physical things as well. He's embodying it physically. So not just with his words, that's primary. He's demonstrating these things as well too. And we're going to see this week how he's going to enable his disciples, he's going to give them authority to do that as well. So and then we're going to talk about how that has ramifications for church ministry and things like that too. So a lot of this is going to pull from last week. If you were here last week, we to looked at a few more of Jesus's healings, miracles he performed. And in fact, one was a resurrection. He raised a little girl from the dead. And we talked about how there's a lot of response to that in the Bible too. Happens all over the Bible. Jesus or God does something amazing And people respond in worship or respond by telling others about it. Huge pattern in the Bible. So much more than go and live your lives really well or be a good person type response we talked about last week. The big pattern we see is people just get blown away by the goodness of God, whether that's a personal thing for them or they're witnessing it out here. And they go and spread the fame of Christ to more people. So proclamation and heralding is the typical Christian response to God's goodness and grace at work in their lives or in the work of the church, broadly speaking, or in others' lives um, around them as they see it happen. So what we're going to do today, then, is pick up on this theme of heralding. So remember, we're breaking this uh, thing down to, uh, into preachable sections, but this is right after what we looked at last week. And so it can be read really as one section as well. Lots of response uh, happens, and, and it calls us to account as, as well. So when we read this, I encourage you guys to uh, have this in mind. And that is, this is God's word. And we're seeing people respond in the narrative, but they're simply pictures of us as well. This is history, but theological history at that. And it always calls us to account. Who is Jesus Christ to you? Who was he to these people that we're reading about? But what about you? And Jesus actually says that to many people in the Gospels. he'll just say to his disciples especially, this is what people say about me, but who do you say that I am? Because that's really the ultimate question. Who is God? What you think about when you think about God, this is a quote from A.W. Tozer, which I love, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. I think that's true. What you think about when God comes to mind, what do you think about? That is by far the most important thing about you and the nice thing about the Bible and and God himself is he speaks to us through his word and doesn't leave it up to us to just figure it out. He reveals it to us. He tells us what he's like and this, this week's passage is huge on that. Every week's passage is But this week's passage is huge on that. He's going to reveal himself to us as a compassionate shepherd. Jesus is. This is is who I'm like, or what I'm like. This is who I am. And it calls us to account in terms of responding to his grace and his goodness and belief and responding in mission and telling other people about it too. So, okay, so that was last week and some of the context here. Today's passage, I think I said, is Matthew 9, 35 to 10, 15. We're just going to read the end of 9 here. It's just four verses And then uh, we'll jump into 10.15 here in a bit, break it down into a couple of sections, but they do relate, as we'll see here in a minute. So, first of all, Matthew 9, 35 to 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, "The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest." All right. So the big thing going on here is that Jesus is having compassion on the crowd. So broad statement about how he's continuing to heal and perform miracles. Then it says it talks about how he's feeling about that, which is amazing because we don't always get this in every section of the Gospels, but. He says in verse 36 when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. He loved them because, and it gives us a clear reason why, too. So the answer is because they were harassed and helpless. Listen to those words. They were harassed and they were helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. So essentially, they were leaderless. They were lost. They were aloof. They really had no idea where they were going. They were in danger of being eaten by wolves, figuratively. Not cared for in general. And sheep are not the smartest of animals. This is a very careful and intentional and regular metaphor the Bible gives. Old and New Testament to the people of God We're like sheep. If you don't know much about sheep, uh, sheep are not the smartest of, of animals. They need a shepherd or they'll wander off and die. They just will. I'm going to pull from the metaphor a little bit. Uh, you never see a sheep thriving on their own, Right? Never see a sheep by himself just off in the woods or something or wherever, prairie. Where do they live? Wherever they live. In a lake? No. Um, Wherever they are, uh, by themselves thriving, right? They're probably on the cusp of death if they are by themselves out just by, by, they never thrive. They can live for a little while, but they never thrive. That's a super important thing here. Jesus is saying that's what people are like. That's what we are like. We are like sheep, but not just sheep. We are like sheep without a shepherd. In that sense, we are harassed and helpless, lost, big biblical theme to what, and descriptive of what the people, what human beings are like, lost, lost. And so when Jesus says he came to seek and save the lost and find the brokenhearted, it's sheep metaphor again. We're scattered. We're on the cusp of death. Wolves are surrounding us. We have no idea where we're going. We're in that way harassed and helpless and leaderless. We have no order in our lives and in that sense, Jesus says here in Matthew 9, so to pull go back to this metaphor, he says, This is the way it is with people. It's the same with them. I'm looking at them, I have compassion on them. And especially in our culture too, I think, in, in a culture, American culture, that it has a lot to say about um, a lot to say about individualism and hard work and an I can do it mentality, I think, in all things. This is and that's there can be some positives, of course, individualism and hard work for sure, but when you spiritualize that too much. Uh, we start to act as though and just believe as though we're not like this. But remember, it's a huge piece to the scriptures. The scriptures tell us who Christ is and they tell us better about who we are because we just don't understand who we are uh, to the degree that the Bible does. And so we have to look at this as a, as a mirror. And it's something that's informative in, in terms of uh, who we are before God. We are like spe- a wandering aimless sheep in grave danger. But that's what makes Jesus' response here beautiful. He just says, this is what I'm seeing and I have compassion for them in that. I'm not just seeing this as a fact. I'm seeing it in my responses. I have love and compassion, and I'm going, to be, I'm going to be that help. So what I want to do now is actually read back. A lot of this imagery comes from the Old Testament, uh, Jesus being a shepherd and the people of God being like sheep. And so I want to read a passage from Ezekiel. It's one of the prophets of the Old Testament, the longer written prophets. Context is hundreds of years before Christ, several hundred years, uh, God raised up prophets to speak and in many cases to write and the written prophets we all have contained here in the Bible, inspired by God, God's words through people. And the context is just widespread rebellion. This is, this is a word God has for the people of Israel. The context is widespread rebellion, sin, judgment. They're in exile, away from the land of God that God promised to give them earlier in their history and did give them. But part of the conditions of the covenant they own of God is, is to keep moral law and to keep other laws. And, and part of the consequence for not for continuing to rebel against him would be separation from him. Further demonstrated separation from God uh, if and when they sinned. And they always did. If you're at all familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, it's in part set up to teach us that. That we are sinners very far from God. Like, like what we're reading here in Matthew 9. Like sheep who have gone astray and are lost and are not where God is. And so in context here, God speaks into that. And particularly to the shepherds and leaders of Israel who are themselves abusing the sheep. And so he has hard words for the religious leaders of Israel, but then, as we'll see in the end, promises, this is hundreds of years before Christ, but it's all about Jesus all the time. He promises the Christ who would come and who would do what the leaders of Israel could not do. So as we read this, look for some of this Matthew 9 imagery. Uh, It's all over the place and, and vice versa. We'll come back and look at it from both ways here in a second. But I want to read Ezekiel 34, uh, 1 to 23, I'm going to skip uh, a couple of verses here uh, to con- make this a little more concise, but in general, 1 to 23. The word of God, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool. "'You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. "'The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, "'the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, "'the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. "'So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, "'and they become food for all the wild beasts. "'My sheep were scattered. "'They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill.' The sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, I am against the shepherds. I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed in the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I the Lord will be their God." And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Isn't that amazing? Just preach it. I think we should just end the sermon right now. Uh, but we won't. But in a nutshell here, uh, this, is, this is a lot of things. But this is, in a nutshell, God promising to do what people can't. It's a p- biblical picture of human failure. And in particular, the leaders of Israel are, are painted as inept. And incapable of caring for the people of God, saving them, seeking out the lost, binding them up. And he's speaking in, spiritual, or in physical metaphor here, but primarily speaking about their spiritual leadership. It even says they're feeding on the sheep. What kind of shepherds do that? They kill the flock and eat them. But that's what their harsh and forced leadership was like. They weren't being protected. They were being led off into all kinds of wickedness and sin And it was the carelessness of the leaders that was self-serving and that led much of Israel into this. But God promises to intervene, right? He says, that's the backdrop to this. But he says, because this is happening, I'm going to intervene and be the shepherd. Nothing's working here, in other words. People can't save themselves or other people. We know they can't save themselves. More of a common biblical theme. But what we're seeing here is people can't save other people as well. Can't happen, ultimately. But God can. And God says, I'm going to intervene here, come into the story, and be the shepherd where the religious leaders uh, have failed to be. God can do this, and he does this through his son, Jesus Christ. So, and that's what's coming up here in the latter part of the passage. If this idea of David and sending my servant David is new to you, whenever you see that biblically, when God says, I'm going to send my servant David, especially here in this portion of the biblical storyline, because David, King David of the Old Testament, one of the kings of Israel, had been dead for a long time at this point. He's not saying I'm going to raise up David literally from the grave or send the living David enable him to live longer or something like that to be a shepherd for you in the near future here. He's saying I'm going to send another one in the bloodline of David who's going to resemble him but be a much greater David at the same time. Because David was actually a shepherd uh, before he was king. He was a young boy. He was a shepherd. He watched over sheep. After that he was called into battle. He slayed Goliath. He was uh, entered into the courts of Saul, the first king of Israel. And climbed the ladder and so forth. God anointed him later on and became king. But, but David was a shepherd. So the idea here is that Jesus will be like that. But he'll be a better shepherd. He'll shepherd people. He'll guide people. He'll feed people. He'll slay the wolves that are trying to attack his people. He'll shepherd us. And he'll be a good one and a compassionate one, a perfect one at that. We all see bad forms of leadership, right? No leadership aside from God is, is perfect. But some is very, very abusive that's ever happened to you, if you've ever been in an abusive leadership situation, and I know some of you have, I've talked to you about it, it's common. If you've ever been in that inside the church or, or elsewhere, but especially the church, God says, he has harsh words for them, and he says, I'm not like that. What you've experienced here is the antithesis of me. I'm going to be a shepherd, which is similar, but a perfect one. I'm actually going to care for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay my life down ultimately for you and feed you and lead you into green pastures. And and give you rest. So so Christ is ultimately, when God says, I'm going to send my servant David, and he will be their shepherd, he will be set up over them, and will bring order. This is hundreds of years before Christ walked the earth, but it's a promise of him. Christ is the new David in his bloodline, also resembling him. He's the promised one. And so, going ahead here in the biblical storyline to Matthew 9 and 10, he's the food for our souls, he's the feeder of our souls, he's the one who gives us rest. A new land to dwell in. The one who seeks the lost and stray and the injured. All of that. He's the promised one. He's going to make this possible. And so if this is the case, then we'd expect to look in the New Testament, like in places we are today, and see a lot of Ezekiel 34 imagery. It's exactly what we find. Just four quick things. There's so many. But four quick things that came to mind for me this week. One is just a couple weeks ago in Matthew 9, 27. Two blind men just cried out to Jesus and said, Have mercy on us, son of David. So, titling him the new David that Ezekiel 34 promises hundreds of years in advance. He's here, the ultimate shepherd. And you could say then that the way he he healed these men was compassionate, gentle, a shepherding-like thing. He was actually taking a sick sheep and making the sheep well. So, doing a shepherd-like thing. Ephesians 1, in Jesus we have obtained land or an inheritance. He's the land. Now, Israel had land physically in the Old Testament, the church claims Christ as their land, where we have provision. Again, protection, a home, closeness to God. Christ brings us to God through his death and resurrection. And in that, the Bible calls him like a land or an inheritance. Matthew 11, come to me and you will find rest for your souls. That's, again, shepherd language here. Come to me and you won't just get physical rest. It'll actually be a spiritual kind of rest. It'll be for your souls. And then Luke 19, very clearly Luke 19.10, in terms of borrowing from Ezekiel 34. For the Son of Man, a phrase for Christ, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Like the leaders of Israel did not do that in the Old Testament. God said I would. I'm going to seek out lost sheep. I'm going to bring them home, and I'm going to protect them and bring them back into the fold Jesus says, I'm going to do that now for people. And then the ultimate one, John 10, 11, one of the other four gospel accounts, in greater context here, Jesus talks about himself as a good shepherd and then he says at the end, I am the good shepherd. I am. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So we have these first four statements which are all a little bit pre-crossed or things that are anticipating. Uh, actually, Ephesians isn't, but we're talking about these benefits that we get with Christ, but really, John 10:11 is the, ma- the means by which Jesus provides all of these shepherding benefits. It's the only way. I'm the Good Shepherd. The good Shepherd lays his life down for the sheep, John 10:11. We get land, we get mercy, we get healing, we get inheritance, we get rest. We get found. Amen. Amen. We get found on the cross. That's where all of that happens because that's really how we shepherd. That's how how Jesus defines his own shepherding role. That's really where he's doing all of that. That's really where he's providing. He's the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is crazy. Crazy kind of love, right? What is that? Battery is dead, yeah. Would do that and not just die, you know. All right, <laughs> yes, we'll keep going. Um, so, but this is how this is how he does it. So he doesn't just grant us those things; he does it through the cross. And so, this is amazing love. What kind of shepherd lays down life for sheep? Right? We should see crazy type of crazy type of unprecedented love when you look at John ten eleven here in the Shepherd Christ. So it's amazing. In fact, in what better way is compassion enacted? than that, right? Than laying down our life for for someone else. This is what God thinks of you. That's really where I want to land here today, because some of you have never thought about this before in your life. You want to know what God is like and what he thinks of you, we look to something like this. This is how he's demonstrated his love. This is how he's been our shepherd. He's pursued you. He's chased you down. Some of you don't feel pursued by God, but put feelings in the back seat and embrace the facts of scripture. This is what he's done. He has chased you down. Do you believe that? Do you believe this is what he's like? Do you believe you're a lost sheep found by God or not? And that he loves doing it, that he has compassion for you when he does it. And that the means by which he chases you down is he's died in your place. The Son of God had to die. Think about it in terms of that, too. Sometimes we've got to remember what we're saved from. The Son of God had to die to secure our freedom. The Son of God had to be nailed to a tree, nailed to a cross and bleed out in your place to secure you from wherever you are wandering from, to bring you back to God. It's incredible, but that is what he is like. No matter what you feel, the word of God confronts us today, right? And says, this is what God is like, no matter what you thought about him before, this is what Jesus is like, this is how he's saved you and been your shepherd. And in the meantime, this is what you've been like, you've been lost, but God is pursuer of your soul. Just bask in that today. Some of you more than others have to just bask in that and choose to believe that. Because you haven't been. You haven't felt that he's been that for you recently. This is what he's like. All right, so let's move on. Matthew 10, 1 to 15. Yeah, it's a good time to break here, bro. Yep, Got some music to play in the background. (laughs) All right, test, test. Coming through? Hello. All right, sounds good. Good. All right, Matthew 10, 1 to 15. So this first section then is, is descriptive of Christ. And as we pull from Ezekiel 34, descriptive of him as being a compassionate shepherd. The next section is Jesus responding to that compassion. So he sees a problem. He has compassion for people. Then he's, what he's going to do here is send out people to express that compassion for more and more and more lost sheep. So he is engaged in ministry. He has disciples or followers as well, people close to him. Twelve men he's going to send out here uh, to express that compassion. So let's read it. Matthew 10, 1 to 15. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of God is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without pain, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, nor, uh, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town." All right, so again, what Jesus is doing here then is he's putting into action some of his compassion. He's expressing compassion by sending people out to announce his kingdom. So the second what I want to do is look at the nature of the message and the mission. So Jesus said, go preach and go demonstrate that proclamation with healings and with things that you uh, do miracle-wise. So look at that here in a second. But in the meantime, just had a couple of asides because I think these are important things to hit on. A couple of questions you may have had as I... As I read through it, at least one question. The first is not so obvious, but the first is in terms of the team itself. So, at this point, Jesus has already called his disciples to himself. He's just regathering them and sending them back out into the towns that surround, which would have been tens and tens and tens of thousands of people likely. Uh, some of the historians of the first and, se- first and second century tell us and try to guesstimate or estimate uh, what, how many people there were there and it likely have been a lot of people. Jesus sees compassion on those amounts and the townships uh, that represented them and sends disciples out into them. But in terms of the team itself, uh, note here that another one of the confronting things that we get from Christ, remember Jesus is confronting the world in a lot of ways when he's uh, teaching and uh, declaring things and healing people, but also I think revelatory things that Jesus tells us about who he is and about his mission in terms of who he calls to himself uh, for a team uh, is the way by which he calls people to himself, but precisely the types of people that he calls to himself. So in other words, here, and this is something that the Bible chooses to record, which I think is important. Uh, we know a lot about, or it's more about these 12 individuals than what's recorded in Scripture, some of them anyway, but some of the things the Bible actually records about them, like their jobs, what they are all about, and what they valued. So with that said, Jesus calls a couple guys that probably didn't get along uh, before this, uh, they were Matthew and Simon. Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew is the author of this book. He was a tax collector uh, who was not a very valued individual uh, amongst Israel at that time because what they did is they probably uh, gathered more than they needed to keep or, or to gather for uh, the Romans and they kept it for themselves. So they were hated. And tax collector was synonymous just with sinner and outcast uh, for the Israelis uh, in the day. We talked about that already in this series. But uh, regardless, he was a Roman. He was Jewish, but he worked for the Roman government who had annexed the land at that time and, and just gathered money from the Israelites. So He was a tax collector. Also, Jesus calls the opposite type of guy Simon, who's not just called Simon, but Simon the Zealot. Zealots were people who were anti-government revolutionaries, literally trying to take up arms and fight the Roman government out of the land. And so what you really have here on Jesus' team, two of the 12, is a pro-Roman tax collector and an anti-establishment revolutionary. Bumping shoulders, you know, breaking bread together. It's awesome. But the point is, like we talk a lot about here, point is, a lot of things to say there. point is here is that Jesus did not come into the world for earthly political reasons. Jesus did not come into the world for earthly political reasons. If he came to overthrow the Romans, he would call less Matthews and more Zealots, take up physical arms like Israel of old and the kings of old and physically fight them out of the land. So many of the Jews were expecting. In this way, he's confronting the world by calling someone like Matthew right alongside a zealot. And you could flip that around as well. He's not just trying to bolster Roman power around the world and bring his kingdom through earthly physical government. If he did, he'd call less zealots and more Matthews. But as it is, he calls, them, he calls a big government pro-Roman tax collector and an anti-establishment, taking-up-arms, conservative, revolutionary and they're breaking bread together and following Jesus all around the place. Isn't that awesome? So what this tells us then again is he did not not come for earthly political reasons. He came to usher in the kingdom of God and to call people to citizenship in that kingdom through his son. He came for spiritual purposes. He came, as Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament, to just save sinners. That's why he came into the world. It's very simple. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, Paul said, among whom or of whom I am I am the the foremost of sinners. All right, so that's the first thing. First aside. Second is just to comment briefly on why Jesus says, go nowhere among the Gentiles or the Samaritans who are half-breeds, Gentile and Jewish, but had Gentile blood in them. Gentile means non-Jewish. Just to comment on that, basically all Jesus is doing here is, remember this is still pre-cross. The New Testament hasn't fully come into the world yet. He didn't die on the cross. That's where the New Testament really begins. Not the manger when he's born, even though in our Bible's in print, the New Testament begins there. In a way, it's near, it's at hand. Like Jesus says, the kingdom of God's at hand with his birth and ministry, but it doesn't really begin until the cross. Um, And so, uh, in that sense, Jesus is just keeping with biblical idea that salvation is from the Jews. John 4, 22, Jesus talks about that there. But the promised Savior would be Jewish. Uh, God identified a people in the Bible to begin his plan of salvation and rescue way back in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, he identified a nation and said, Through you, I'm gonna bless the nations. So he always had an eye on the nations, but he chose a people to bring blessing through. And ultimately, I mean, literally, Jesus is born as a Jew uh, to bring that blessing to the world through his death and resurrection. And so, here before that death and resurrection happens, though, he's just acknowledging, it's just good biblical theology, that the Jews would be the first ones to hear the message and to return to God out of spiritual exile. Like the Old Testament, Ezekiel 34 foretold. They're in exile. They're away from God. God's promising a good shepherd to go out and gather them and bring them back to himself. That's what he's promising. And Jesus is beginning to enable that and literally, in a a first-tier manner, fulfill the Old Testament scriptures by announcing this good news to Israel alone. But after that, it would widen out to include all because all of us are exiled from God in our sin and Jesus came for all of us, for the sins of the world and not just, not just Israel. So it's just a chronology thing here. So still pre-cross, Jesus is just keeping with good biblical theology in that salvation is from the Jews. It would make sense that it would kind of go out in concentric circles. We'd announce it first here and then, if you're familiar with the storyline, after Jesus Christ dies and is raised again and the Spirit comes to the church, it explodes and goes to more Jews but then to many uh, Gentiles and out to the ancient world's... Uh, to the, really the ends of the earth, you could say, um, very quickly. All right, here's what I want to focus on more than this. Uh, with those sides aside, uh, wh- what was their message and mission? They said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, so it was near but not fully here yet. It was beginning to come into the world through Christ. We talked about that. Then they were given authority to do what Jesus had been doing. So if you've been uh, reading Matthew along with us or if you're familiar with us already, Really what Jesus is giving authority to do, he has done identical stuff to that just right before this. So we're supposed to pick up on that and say, Jesus did all this stuff. Now the disciples are being given authority to, to do exactly what Jesus has been doing. Announcing and teaching about the kingdom of God coming into the world and also healing people and exercising demons and, uh, and making the paralytics rise up again and all, all different types of healing. He's giving that authority to, to them as well. So they'd pronounce and then they'd heal or exercise demons to demonstrate what that meant. But one thing we have to ask here, and I think when we ask this question and answer it, we get a much better idea for what's going on here biblically than we otherwise would. And so the question we have to ask is, is all of this in Matthew 10 representative of Christian ministry for all time or not? Is it paradigmatic of post-cross or after the cross and the empty tomb, Christian ministry for all time uh, or not? A lot of Christians, and in some ways, rightly so, use passages like this or this one in particular to form how they do ministry, how they do church, and even to address more broad sweeping issues, like what does it mean to be Christian? How should I use my time? What does it mean to be on mission with God? And to address all those questions, this might be one of their main, one of their main texts. And so I think to answer in a concisely anyway, the question, is Matthew 10 paradigmatic of Christian ministry for all time? I think it's a yes and a no. So, we'll do the yeses first. A few things here. Going back, there, it's yes in the following ways. First of all, when we go back to Matthew 10, we see that we've been talking about this so frequently because it's so important. Great paradigm for Christian ministry is that they declare, they speak, and they demonstrate as a piece to their ministry, like it is for the church today. So, Jesus says, I want you to speak with your words and demonstrate with your actions what I'm all about, why I've come. Words are primary but actions also were a piece to what they were doing. So they were likely preaching about healing from sin, like Jesus does already in this, uh, that the kingdom of God is going to be about healing from sins, but they were also healing cripples and healing lepers physically as they were announcing that, to demonstrate that in a physical manner. It's the same with us today. Miracles do still exist. We'll talk about here in a second how they've uh, gone back to the background a little bit more than they they were in Jesus' day. Uh, But they do still exist. But even things like service and generosity and hospitality all of those things have the same purpose. They can demonstrate physically what Christ is all about. Christ is generous. Christ is a servant. Christ is a helper of our souls on the cross. And so we too are called, the church is called, to demonstrate uh, as we declare the truths of the gospel to to the world around us. So it's exactly what they're doing here. And so we are called, uh, so in that way, it is paradigmatic. Secondly, this is really important, the nature of their message is not how to be better people, but about what God is doing in the world. Notice that Jesus does not say, go out and pronounce to the world, try harder. Be a better person. That's not the message. The message is, God's kingdom has arrived on God's watch. He's here. He's here to save you. Ezekiel 4 is being fulfilled. The shepherd's here. All of you lost and brokenhearted and sick and threatened by wolves, people, your shepherd's here. And so it's a heralding, it's a pronouncement, not religion, but grace and good news. That's what gospel means. They're pronouncing the gospel of the kingdom. Common phrase in Matthew. The good news of the fact that God is here to set up his his kingdom. And that's that's the same thing for us as well on this side of the cross. It's paradigmatic. It's representative of our ministry. We go out to the world, the message is God is here to save you. Not be a better person, not your best life now. God is here and he's died on the cross for your sins. And he's raised from the dead. Death had no hold over him either. And it's true for you too. Believe. It's a cult of belief in that. Uh, not, to, uh, not to form our life around a, a set of morals that are incapable, Or um, behavior modification. The phrase I was looking for. Not behavior modification, uh, but announcement of what God is up to in, in the world. So huge, huge piece to pick up on here. Look at the nature of their message. Is the nature of your message in step with this? Or are we trying to reform the world to a certain set of morals that they can't keep anyway? Of course, transformation and repentance is a big piece to the gospel, but uh, in due time. Uh, The message here is just, to to the brokenhearted, come to the foot of the cross and receive, uh, receive grace. All right, third, they were given authority. It wasn't earned. So we see here in verse one, he called them as 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction and then in verse 8, you received without pain, get, give without pay. So it's the same with us again. We have no power to preach or heal or serve or love in Christ's name so that none of us can boast. All of your good works as Christians, when you demonstrate the love of God to people, and your, the message itself, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he's insufficient to save people with a message. I'm insufficient to preach, he's saying. I'm insufficient to take a hardened heart and make it soft. Only God can do that. So, God, give me the authority when I speak and the power when I speak to make the words matter. It's a big part of this prayer. It should be ours as well. We've been given authority, but notice the given. It's a gospel word, right? Everything's given. Just like your salvation's given to you, not earned by your goodness and righteous works. So are so is the actual ministry we have given and the authority we have to pronounce grace. If you've ever Led someone to Jesus, pronounced good news, and they've responded. It's the authority of God on you that's made that possible. It is not you. So that none of us can boast. Then he also says here in verse 8, you receive without pain. So I think what goes along with that idea is that our ministry should reflect the gospel. It should reflect the idea that we received everything. And so our ministry should have no strings attached and it should reflect that it's a free gift of God that brings people back to God in Christ. Uh, not, not religion, not morality, not self. Not any other God or system of philosophy under the sun except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So that's what that, that's what that gets at. Uh, fourth, they are rejected at times, like we are, yet others receive the message. That's similar and paradigmatic as well. And then fifth and final, a certain Christian laborers, as he says here, deserve their food. It's actually, it's a phrase that later the Apostle Paul quotes in 1 Timothy 5. just want to read that in context. Uh, Paul is talking about elders And he's saying, Let the elders or overseers who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves, this is the quote, The laborer deserves his wages. That's right from Matthew 10. The first one's from Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. So, uh, basically what Paul is getting at here is he's just saying that there are certain Christian uh, laborers, he's talking about elders and Uh, pastors here and missionary types that should be paid. It's an argument made elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 9, but he's using the Old Testament and the New Testament to say that it's paradigmatic. That doesn't mean that every situation is identical in terms of how pastors and elders and missionaries are paid, but it does acknowledge a biblical pattern. Like even the Old Testament, which is more black and white, right? He's saying like oxen in the Old Testament that were treading out grain at harvest time should not be muzzled so that as they're working, they could eat some of what they're treading out So should Christian ministers and pastors that are working the the spiritual harvest of souls uh, be paid for their labors. And then more clearly in the New Testament here, uh, he's just quoting from Matthew 10 and saying it was paradigmatic. When Jesus sent out people, he also talked about the laborers, Christian laborers, deserving uh, their food. And so he quotes there to make that, to, to bolster his argument in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 5. So... So that's representative as well. So five things there I think that are big and a couple others too that you could head on, but five of the major ones there that make what we're seeing in Matthew 10 representative, something we can look to and say, this should inform my ministry. Uh, As an individual Christian with my church, I should declare, demonstrate, live as though everything's given, not earned. The meat of my message should be God has done something you haven't. God's done everything. You can't save yourself. So the kingdom of God is here. The shepherd's here. That's be the meat of our message over and against other things that are much more uh, moral ba- morality based, and then uh, we'll be rejected at times as well, just like they are, uh, and we should move on and keep sowing seeds. And many will, but many others will hear and believe uh, believe as well. All right, so that's the yes. So is it paradigmatic of our Christian ministry now for all time post cross? Yes, for those reasons. But also no. There's a no element on this as well. Actually, just two things here. First of all is that we are called to go to the ends of the earth, not just to Israel. That's more of the obvious one. This is pre-cross still. We talked about that before. But Christians are called clearly after the cross to bring the message to the ends of the earth. Or at least in our context here, to all nations. We live around the nations here. It's a major metropolitan city, a global city in a lot of ways, certainly in America. The nations are here. Uh, Our neighbors are here. Jew and Gentile live around us. Preach good news to them. It's for all. Because all are sinners, all are exiled from God. So that's the difference here is that there's a bit of a cap on the extent to which the good news of the kingdom was starting to go out uh, before the cross, but now it's exploded and it's taken on different shape. And, and that leads me to the second thing, the more important thing is, if you look at Matthew 10, again, chronology here is super important. This is understand, this is still pre-cross. So what they're doing then, the disciples, is more of an extension of Jesus' pre-cross ministry than it is a how-to for post-cross ministry. It's really important there to understand. If you don't get anything else from this latter section, just understand that, at least with these no's here. That what they're doing is more of an extension of Jesus' pre-cross ministry than it is a how-to for post-cross ministry. In other words, remember what Jesus is doing. He's preparing the way for the main thing. What he's doing here is not the main event. Everything he says, everything he does whether he declares or demonstrates, is preparatory for the cross. And so that's what the disciples are doing as well. They're preparing the way for the cross, but in that, their ministry is a little bit lesser. Has to be by definition. Jesus hasn't died for the sins of the world yet. It's still kind of Old Testament times. And so what they're doing in Matthew 10 is continue to prepare the way for the crux of history, but not uh, be equals with it, or certainly not supplant it or, or become more important than it. The death and resurrection of the Son of God is coming. That's the nearness of the kingdom of God. When they say the kingdom of God is at hand, it's near, it's what they're saying. The death and resurrection ultimately of the Son of God is on the threshold, but it's not here. Prepare your hearts and believe the good news. It's almost here. It's almost arrived. The ultimate promised shepherd is almost here. Then we have to ask, what changes then, right? If it's not paradigmatic in some ways, well, what shifts? What changes? I think there's a couple main things. First of all, The message gets more explicit, right? All the disciples are saying is the kingdom of God is near. But they're not talking about the cross yet or the empty, it hasn't happened, the empty tomb. None of that's mentioned. So we can't just go to people and say the kingdom of God is near. We have to qualify what that means, right? And explain in more specific terms how exactly God has set up his kingdom. How exactly he has shepherded our lost souls. How has he done it? How has he declared and demonstrated those things in the world? And we get to the cross when when we do that. So the message that our message in the church now, post-cross, gets much more explicit and clear and specific and I think miracles fade a bit to the background but still maintain their place of pointing to and demonstrating spiritual truth when God so enables it. We actually see this in the book of Acts uh, in Acts 2.38 so the first sermon ever given Christian sermon really the Apostle Peter stands up and says a lot of things about Christ. He, he died and how that was part of the plan of God. He's been raised. God raised him from the dead. And forgiveness of sins is in that. Then he said to them, so people respond and say, what do we do that this has happened? What do we do that the Son of God has died and, and risen again and that his blood are on our, is on our hands really? We've done that. Peter's saying, oh, but it's all been planned by the sovereignty of God. And it's, it, in, it was intended to happen. In that is forgiveness of sins. So he responds by saying this, repent and be baptized Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So, you see how much more specific that is than what happened before the cross? It was the kingdom of God is near. This stuff is near, but a bit more enigmatic and and foggy. Then it gets crystal clear. This is what God's been up to the whole time, this is how he heals. This is how he gives us land. This is how he gives us rest. This is how he saves us from our sins and hell itself. This is how he calls us back out of spiritual exile to himself. Forgiveness of our spiritual sickness. Sin. So what do we do? We just respond by turning from our old life and we're baptized in his name. We just believe. We receive it. That's his message. So, But this is, in a way, consistent in a lot of ways with Matthew 10, but also qualitatively different and more specific. And this has to inform our message a lot more than than what Matthew 10 informed, or how Matthew 10 uh, served as that paradigm or representative. So I think what this means then is that uh, the absence of miracles in church today, um, we still believe in miracles here. A lot of churches don't. Uh, They have different positions on that. Uh, It's not a major hill for us, but we still have a position on it. We believe miracles happen. We've seen miracles. We pray for miracles. We also think they've taken a back seat to the main event of God sending his son into the world to die for our sins. That's the main miracle. So if the people of God are all about miracles, if that's a big part of what God is doing in the world, then why not emphasize the greatest one of all, like Jesus did? Forgive sins and offer people the forgiveness of sins through telling them about Jesus Christ. That's what we're about at Hiawatha Church. Proclaiming grace and the goodness of God in that over and over and over again. And then praying for miracles too to demonstrate physically that, but we're not going to put all our eggs in that basket. And God has not failed if he decides not to answer that prayer. Because he always, every single time someone comes to him in their spiritual brokenness, to pull from Ezekiel 34 and some other things here in the New Testament, they're always brought back to the fold. God never says no. He will say no sometimes when we say, God, take this cancer away. That will be a no or a wait. But he will never say no to take my sins away, take my spiritual cancer away. Find me. Bring me back to you and never let me go again. Slay this wolf that's knocking on my door and wants my blood. Kill it. I can't slay my own sin. Help me. I'm being crushed by it. He'll always answer those prayers. That's gospel prayer. That's cross-centered prayer. Empty tomb prayer. What the whole Bible is is about type prayer. The ultimate miracle type prayer. Always answer that. He says earlier, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, all who ask, receive. Those types of things. Ask him for help in those areas, for salvation in those areas, for deliverance in those areas, and then make that the main essence of our mission when we go out into the world, into the church, and into our neighborhood and beyond. When we preach good news to the ends of the earth, to our neighbors, coworkers, families, and send others out further, that has to inform our message more than what Matthew Matthew ten does, Acts two does, and things like that. So the main test then of a true, sent-by-Jesus church, the main test of a Spirit-empowered church is do they pronounce the gospel and offer belief and repentance in the name of Christ as the meat of the message? That's the, you look at the Bible, that's the main thing. If a church is doing that, they're healthy and mature and they're on mission with God. They pull back and get too foggy with that, emphasizing the miracle over the message. Something's seriously dysfunctional and wrong because we're offering people physical hope when God offers a much greater eternal hope um, that's related to it, but much, much, much better than it at the same time. All right. So that's the second thing, yes and no. So a couple of things here in conclusion. What do we do with this? I think there are three things. We've seen this come up all, all the time. And you will. As you keep reading your Bibles, you're going to see this come up all the time. There's belief and thanksgiving and, it, and what God has done for us. And then there's response by spreading the fame of God uh, to more people. So the first is just belief. Remember, it start, all starts with Christ and him saying, I'm the compassionate shepherd. I see lost sheep who are unable to save themselves, and I go after them tirelessly. The first is to believe in the shepherd. He will save you from a fate worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. We can talk a lot about verse 15 today, but Sodom and Gomorrah are two cities back in Genesis 19, that are destroyed for their sin, their rebellion against God. Uh, fire rains from the sky. God actually saves uh, one family from the fire, uh, but everyone's, everyone's destroyed. But basically what God is saying here is, we have to remember what we're being saved from, right? This is serious. And we're, we're not just needing a jump in the winter for a car battery. We're pinned under a tree, dying and bleeding out, you know? It's serious. We're on our way to hell. And, and that's, that's the compassion he shows, right? We'll appreciate the compassion more from our God when we understand where exactly we're wandering to. We're a sheep, we're heading straight for a cliff with no intention to turn around. And that's the, that's, that's the type of compassion, the context for compassion that Jesus shows us. He's chasing us down in that type of situation. And he's saying, those who don't believe in me, the true shepherd, and reach out and cling and wash themselves in my blood and cling to the cross and say, that's where I get the forgiveness of sins. He's saying the, their fate will be worse than of physical dying in fire that Sodom and Gomorrah faced. Because it will be eternal. It will be in hell forever and ever and ever. Separation from God forever and ever and ever. That's what he's saying. This is vintage Jesus stuff here, by the way, too. Compassionate and loving, off the charts, but also full of wrath against sin. Gotta have both. If your Jesus is just one of the two, it's not a biblical Jesus. Gotta have both. He is is wrathful against sin. He's the judge uh, we see in the Bible as well. He's God himself. But he is also the most compassionate, loving, generous being in the universe itself. Glory to God. Uh, He's both. But we've got to understand this. This is response stuff. We're calling people and ourselves to believe. This is who Jesus is. This is what he offers us. Do we believe or not? And to those who don't throughout their life, when Christ comes back or they die, that's it. No more chance. And so I just want to offer you guys, again, a second uh, chance, wherever you are spiritually, to believe that today. Right now, come messy to the cross. Be a lost sheep. Don't find yourself. Don't find Jesus, like a lot of songs sing about. Believe that Jesus has found and chased you down. That's what he's like. How amazing, right? This is what our God and Savior is like. This is what he's done. Believe in him. Trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins, and and you will find it and have it. Second is related, just rejoice that he has laid down his life for you and in that manner, done all these things we talked about today, been a shepherd, given you rest, fed you, bound your injuries, protected you from evil in all its forms. Then respond, extend Jesus' compassion to our city. So this is how he's been compassionate to you. And if you are a Christian today, someone has preached the the gospel to you. Whether very formally or informally, someone has led you to the word. And you're here because someone got on mission. They, they did what's going on in this passage. They said, Jesus has been compassionate to me. I've, I've been given everything, so I'm going to give without pay. I'm going to go out into the world and just give the gospel to more people. Uh, so extend this is, this is good church theology stuff here too. Jesus is alive in us as a church. And so he's going he's gonna to extend his compassion more and more and more to us and to the world through us. That's the means by which he's going to do it. So you've got to acknowledge that you are sent. There's no question of some Christians are sent and others are not sent. You just have to be sent because the sent one, Jesus, the ultimate shepherd and compassionate one, is alive in you right now. You can't be a Christian and not have that reality. You have to have it. So yes, we're going to be imperfect in how we're sent, but Jesus is sending himself over and over and over again by his Spirit through his church. So just acknowledge that. And make that meat of your message like we talked about. The essence of our message is not how to have our best life now. It's not the message. The message is heralding God who came to rescue us on earth. It starts with intention to pray, getting to know non-Christians. Most of you do already. uh, But if you don't, get to know some. Invite them to Christ. Share stories. Invite them to dinner, to church. All with the intent to demonstrate and pronounce, mostly pronounce, but also to demonstrate the gospel to them. So again, go back to Matthew 10. If you're ever a question mark of how should ministry look, look for the ways it is paradigmatic, it is representative of Matthew 10, but then go, go past it as well to so like Acts 2 and think, what, what's the, how, is it, how is my message better than that as well? And emphasize that and bring that to, to the ends of the earth. This is always the way the church is built, by the way. Our church will not grow. The global church, the true church, will not grow without heralding and proclamation. And people like in the Gospels, you constantly see, wanting to make it famous and say, look what he's done. Look at how much he's been a shepherd. Look at how much he's come to our rescue. And announcing that, not morality or religion, your best life now, announcing what God has done in the world for us through his son, Jesus Christ. That's it. That's what makes our message different from any other message in the world, Uh, spiritual or otherwise. We announce God. We herald God as king. We say he's arrived. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. It's here. This is what it means. Let me show you. It's got to be our message. So uh, I'm going to pray for that now. and i even, pray. Not batteries now. Even as I pray, uh, think about people in your life that, that are outside of Christ. Some of you today are. My invitation to you is to come to the shepherd. Come to the waters. Uh, buy and eat, the scriptures say, without money. Buy and eat of salvation without money. Uh, but those of you here, uh, those of you here who are Christians, this is what this calls us to. There is a pattern, unavoidable pattern in the Bible, of God doing something amazing and people spreading his fame for it. Unavoidable. You just can't, it's convicting, right? It's hard, it's difficult. It's not to say we won't get rejected and hurt and spend time and resources and lose things. We will, we will. But it's worth it. Because of judgment that's coming, because of the hope of eternal life that we can offer people that will. Be such a solution to the suffering that they have in their life right now of multiple kinds. We just need to offer this gospel and grow the church, build the church through conversion uh, like it always has throughout history, like it is here uh, in in the Bible as well. Let let it be paradigmatic, that portion anyway, of um, your life and our life as a church right now. So let me pray. God, thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Thank you so much for the gospel in this passage and that it is, if we are saved here today, Uh, We have been shown compassion by Jesus. Somehow he has looked to us in our distress and he has sent someone himself uh, through a vessel to express help, to express healing, to express a binding up, to express healing of the brokenhearted, to express salvation from sin. You've done that. Whether we believe that or not, you have looked over us, the masses of Hiawatha Church here. You've shown compassion and you've come to our rescue. Hallelujah. You have done it. And so we just herald you as the almighty king of the universe, the savior of all, the only one worthy of praise and worship. Uh, God, I pray that all of us now in response uh, through song, wherever we are spiritually, wherever we are, Christian or not, we'd bend the knee for the first or millionth time say Jesus is the compassionate promised shepherd of old who is here to usher in his kingdom and save us. Glory to God. And we pray, God, for more people to hear we pray for the lost and brokenhearted in South Minneapolis and Longfellow and in our context who don't yet know the severity of their situation in their lostness. They don't yet know their sin and they don't know a Savior at all. Uh, they think Jesus is more of a guru and a prophet. If anything, if not a made-up story, then he is a Savior. Than he is one who died on a cross in our place for our sins. So we pray that that message, God, would go forth to the, to, to the ends of the earth in our context here and, and beyond. Empower our missionaries who are serving over abroad, but empower us as missionaries here. Here in Minneapolis. and May Minneapolis be a more reached area. Um, even at the end of this week, God, we pray for that. May conversions happen now for the glory of God. Give us souls uh, through the ministry that you send us out empowered by you uh, into this uh, into our workplaces and neighborhood and City here. We pray for the salvation of more people, God. Help us to embody your compassion through words and deeds. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.